You are listening to the Swim Not Sink Leadership Podcast, the show for first-time leaders, for that moment in your career when the book stops with you. This is your window into the world of how to lead successfully. Now, over to your host, James Nagel. Hi, welcome to a new episode of the Swim Not Sink Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, James Nagel, and my guest today is Sarah Tate. And we're going to discuss her transition from self-doubt to success at TBWA, the creative agency. I think this is going to be a great topic because most of you listeners are somewhere between the self-doubt and the success. But first of all, let me tell you about Sarah. She has been CEO of TBWA London since 2017, having previously led Mother, the UK's largest independent agency for 10 years. Her management style is about the collective. Collaboration is a necessity. She believes that to produce work that can truly be called creative, every department needs a voice. On top of the day job and being a working mom, she has recently launched her own podcast, The Rebuilders, which is about committing to a broken situation and turning it into a success. And the show notes will have all the links. So it's my pleasure to introduce Sarah. Hello, it's so nice to be here. Thank you for having me, James. It's nice to be sitting in the uh, the hot seat rather than doing the interviewing. Well, let's see how you feel at the end. That's true, that's true. <laughs> so first of all, to start with the personal link, uh, Alistair Payton, who was a, a guest on my, on my first season, saw what we were both doing uh, in terms of the podcast and thought it would be great. So we've already had our blind date and that went well. And yes, the, uh, <laughs> now we're back. Now we're back. So uh, let's get straight to it. I was really struck. You took over at TBWA London after four predecessors had all moved on after short stints. So when you walked in on that first day, you know, how clear were you on what needed to be done? That's a great question. Um, with hindsight, I would say not clear enough. Um, you know, we have, well, not just myself, but with my amazing partners, Anna and Andy, who I actually went in on the same day with, we went in as a, as a trio, um, and the support of brilliant people in the agency, we have made it a wonderful success, but actually looking back, um, there was quite a lot of naivety there in terms of, in terms of what needed to be done. And in some ways that was okay because, you know, it's sort of, uh, gave us energy and it, you know, it sort of uh, made us immune to some of the problems we were going to have to face, actually. But hindsight is a wonderful thing. And sort of looking back, I probably could have had a clearer plan for myself and my own approach to the, to the leadership journey. So let's, staying on that sort of first day, if given what you knew then, if I asked you, you know, why are you the best person to do this? What, what would you have said? Very interesting. I would have, um, I would have focused on very specific previous experience I was bringing to the role. So I had, um, I had been lucky enough to work at many, many very successful agencies that were successful long before I got there and would have been successful, I'm sure, without me. Um, but what that meant was I'd worked in environments where I'd seen what good looked like. 
from a from a creative agency standpoint and so when I went into TVWA which had been an amazing agency um you know in in my youth uh had had some wonderful creative work but had just sort of fallen on slightly fallow times I had quite a clear idea or ideal in my head of what it needed to look like and feel like in order to be more like the places I'd been at before which had been very successful um, and actually, that sort of is okay for about the first year. But what becomes really fascinating after a while is once you've used that box of tricks, you know, once you've kind of done the low hanging fruit and gone, okay, well, you know, I can make these things a little bit more like success I've seen somewhere else, then it becomes quite a different story. Because then you're actually, um, first of all, the world's changed. You know, I've been there, I'm in my fourth year now. So what a great agency looked like four years ago is completely different. I mean, you know, what the world looked like 12 months ago is completely different for most of us. So I went from going, here's a blueprint, I'm going to copy that blueprint, to after about 18 months, you start to go either, okay, we've done that blueprint, or actually I'm looking around and I think the blueprint's changing. And that's when I think the kind of rubber really starts to hit the road once you've sort of used used the box of tricks you'd learn somewhere else and you have to really start thinking again and thinking differently. So did you used to say in that first year at Mother, we used to do it like this? Oh, I'm sure you, I did. Were you sure. one of those terrible people? Oh my God, I'm sure everyone absolutely wanted to strangle me. I mean, luckily Mother is an amazing agency. Um, I, I think also I, I went into somewhere where I, there were lots of elements which I could make comparable. So for example, um, and there were lots of things which actually TBWA and Mother used to have in common. So they are creatively driven businesses. There was a certain thing around the size of business. Um, both agencies are around 120, 140 people. So I sort of had a sense in my bones of what it felt like when a place like that feels good, a sense of collaboration, a sense of energy. I wouldn't have gone into an agency that was 550 people for example, because I wouldn't have known what that felt like. So there was a lot of my previous experience, which was really relevant. And actually, one of my chief creative officer that I went in with was a former colleague of mine from Mother. And we knew in a way that we'd been taken in to bring some of the secret sauce that we'd learn elsewhere. But that only goes so far because ultimately TBWA wants to be its own thing, its own place. And the challenges that you meet start to be things you haven't necessarily met before. So I'm intrigued. So the first year is clear. What did you do as you started year two and beyond? What, mm -hmm. what were the new things that you had to evolve? It's a great question. I mean, you know, there's some there's some things that are quite specific to the to the industry that I'm in. So, you know, we we have grown to be not a TV led agency. My my old agency was quite TV led. We have quite a, a you know much more diverse offering, etc. But more than that, I just had to start to to manage differently and accept what I didn't know. So for example, um, my previous agency was an independent company, whereas now I'm part of a global collective. And one of the big wake-ups for me was that actually I had quite a complex stakeholder matrices that sat around me that I wasn't really using. Um, because previously, you know, I'd been, it was independently owned, all the stakeholders were in one building, and, you know, I just sort of assumed it was the same thing. And what it meant was that I wasn't actually managing that group very well. And uh, and that started to cause some issues. But also, I wasn't utilizing what that group could bring because the brilliant thing about being part of a global collective or a network is, yes, there's more stakeholders to manage, but there's also a lot more people out there that can help you. 
So a quite, you know, after about 18 months, we, you know, we really started to go, not only do we not have all the answers, but actually there's a lot of really smart people in LA or Istanbul that can really help us with this. And we started to more actively spend our time looking outside of London um, and building relationships and asking for help from elsewhere um, and taking learnings in from elsewhere. So, so that was that was one of the big ones. Um, I also realised that I hadn't probably put an adequate um, uh, problem solving team in place. Um, so we did have a management team. Um, uh, but it was probably, I would say, a little too command and control looking back. You know, I had a vision, me and my partners had a vision of what we were doing and we were going to execute that. And that sort of is fine when you're at the beginning of a turnaround where things are pretty um, tough and, you, you know, you need to make quite quite particular changes. But actually, as you start after about 18 months, once those changes have been made, I re- we realized we needed a management team that was much more a problem solving team. Um, and I had to get quite comfortable with taking things to them and saying, I, I don't know how to solve this, actually. I've come across something that I don't know how to solve. And now, four years later, where the whole world has changed, I mean, I come across five of those things before breakfast that I don't know how to solve. So it just meant I needed to build a sort of different support system and the management team needed to be much more empowered and just sort of operate in a um, uh, in a much more sort of substantive way where they were really helping to problem solve and implement implement solutions you've made that very clear actually the the command and control i think everyone gets there was a turnaround needed you brought in your your toolbox and you did it and then after that you know you use the terminology problem solving so if i if i did a walk around your virtual office and i had access to all your team you know if i said what is the culture that sarah encourages what, what would they say uh, well, I'm glad to say I have actually had appraisal since I've been there, um, which was hugely enlightening because, an appra- you know, I'm all for formal and informal feedback. But actually, particularly as a CEO and a C-suite, you really want to hear about the culture that you are creating, like the shadow that you leave, how people feel once you have dealt with them. Um, because you're not always aware of what that is. You know, you might think you're being inspirational, but actually you're sucking the oxygen out of a room, for example. My appraisal told me I am quite collaborative. Um, I do try to model a sort of slightly more um, inclusive style of leadership than perhaps some, some CEOs do in a more traditional environment. But what I... One thing I that came out that I have to work on was quite interesting, which I found absolutely fascinating. This is why I think feedback is brilliant. Is um, I'm quite a sort of high communicator, and so I I talk very freely and I listen to people who speak up quite freely. But one thing, or as I thought, I was able to bring everyone in. One thing that came out to me, which which really helped me, was that I need to listen to quieter voices. Um, so I need to make sure that I make space for everyone. So whilst the intention was there to make space for everyone, in truth, I tend to, you know, louder voices float to the top or people who naturally step forward and collaborate would often sort of end up taking a disproportionate share of my attention. So that was a really interesting thing for me to try and work on. So my intention remains the same to be quite inclusive and collaborative and take input, but how I go about it has sort of had to evolve. So I do try and make time to spend time with people that I don't sort of naturally end up spending time with. And actually that's now we're all working virtually. I've had to just triple down on that 
because I'm sure lots of leaders have found that you end up, you can't do a walk around the office, you know, and so you end up dealing with quite a narrow, probably group of people within your business that you have transactional dealings with or that you have meetings with. But there's a huge array of people that have things they want to share with you or tell you or great insights to give you that you need to actually put in time to go out of your way and speak to because there is no bumping into them at the water cooler. You know, you actually have to put in kind of calls and and time to do so. So it's been interesting to try and take those learnings and transpose them virtually as well. I want to go back actually because something that's happened in, in your journey there that that I sort of skipped over too quickly, which is, so year one, you know, went well, you brought in your toolkit and then you realized the need for change. My question is, was that something that sort of nicely organically evolved or was it, you know, there was a target missed or there was some direct feedback? Because most people don't change, mm. you know, voluntarily. They, it's usually some form of a crisis or a feedback which gets them to do that. So, what made you realize that your original toolbox had run out of steam? It's a great question. We were coming to the end of our second year and actually we had, um, and we'd actually had a pretty good year. It come about in a couple of ways, which was sort of global people were less sure of the path you were taking, but also critically, someone came in with the benefit of a break. My CSO had been out on maternity leave and she came back in and she was able to come in with clear eyes and go, some things need to change. Like in the last year, these things have stayed a little bit the same. You know, she was able to bring in some fresh insight and just by being there, change up the dynamic a little bit. And it just allowed us to take, you know, to really reset as we went into the following year. Um, you know, we were able to sort of step out and say, really, truly with the, you know, with the freshness of someone who'd been out of the business for 10, 11 months to go, come on, guys, what are we doing? And actually, what do we want to be doing next year? So it was a, a kind of a forced, a forced shift in a way. But equally, it was a, it was a soft push you had. It, it was a soft a, push. It was yeah, a soft yeah. push. Yeah. And, and yeah. It's, it's admirable that you picked up on it. So I'm, I'm going to go then to this whole thing of collaboration and, and the fact that you work as a triumvirate. Mm. That's really feels foreign to me right you know and so i'm really curious so maybe, yeah. start with the, maybe start with the pros and cons of, of how that how that works in practice so first of all it's relatively common in our industry to kind of work in those groups it's not uh, you know so it's something we're all quite used to and the key thing is we all have clear areas of responsibility so chief creative officers responsible creative, creative output i have a chief strategy officer myself and and my cfo um but we do come together for collective decision making on the big things. You know, I don't take decisions without, you know, without the rest of that sort of trio or quad with my with my CFO there. But I think because we have our areas of specialisms and because we have spent 20 years within that specialism in some cases, actually we, you know, we have strong respect for each other one thing we've also done which i i think has helped is after two and a half years we um we did some uh, quad coaching and i'm an absolute massive coaching advocate and what it was able to do was just to make sure that we were communicating as effectively between the four of us and making decisions as effectively as we could be which you sort of take as read that you do but actually it was interesting just to kind of you know, be in process a little bit as a as a group, but um, yeah, it it, I, it works brilliantly for me. It's interesting what you say about having somebody observe your meetings or observe your decision process because I, I had that once that was imposed on me early on. I remember the girl at the time; she just said, 
the roles and responsibilities aren't clear. You know, there was one functional leader in my team who it wasn't clear if he was absorbing my role of taking the decision or whether he was on the side of his team. But it was fascinating to just get that insight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, exactly. And I, I, you know, I've benefited hugely from having really excellent coaching at TBWA. Um, and it sort of taught me so much. And one of the things that kind of taught me is that a good team should always be in process, should always be working on itself. Because, you know, 90% of the time, me and my partners, it works perfectly. But sometimes, you know, maybe there's a new person join or maybe there's new external uh, context, so COVID or working virtually. And actually, you don't necessarily want to just assume that it, it'll naturally fall into operating perfectly. Why not take a bit of time to kind of ensure that it's operating perfectly? And sometimes when I when I found, you know, with other um, team groups that I sit in, when it doesn't work quite as well is when things are sort of implicit. You implicitly understand how your work and what the roles and responsibilities are. Sometimes people have slightly different views of what that is. And it's much better just to make it explicit just to kind of contract around it and say, okay, these decisions you take, this is what I take, this is your expectation, this is my expectation. And it doesn't even need to take more than half an hour sometimes, and it can just solve so many issues. I'm going to go back to the theme just for a second, because it was from self-doubt to success, and I haven't mm-hmm. heard about self-doubt yet. <laughs> <laughs> so so when, when we talked previously, you yeah. mentioned that at one point in your career, you had self-excluded from taking on a CEO role. Yeah, that's right. Tell me about that. So there's two reasons. One of them is personal, but I think it is important to state because other people might find themselves in a similar position and the the other is professional. So the personal one was that um, I'd made assumptions about what um, the role would require from me in terms of my, my life and my sort of balance. And I had two small children. I, in fact, was on maternity leave when I left my previous role at Mother. My children were zero and two years old and just turned two years old. And I had made a decision, an assumption that actually being a CEO wasn't for me. My kids were too small and it would take too much of a toll. I wouldn't be able to balance it with what I wanted my family life to look like. And I say that because I I know, I think I'm sure I'm not the only person, man or woman, who's made some assumptions around that kind of thing. And what happened was, in actual fact, I was employed by a very enlightened person called Troy Rahalan, who's my global CEO, who gave me this job on a four day week, a four day week for a first time CEO. I mean, I just didn't even know it was possible. And so it just showed me, don't rule it out necessarily ask for what will work for you, the shape that will work for you, and you might find it's available. And I, I do think that's quite important to say. And actually, I have my kids are now four and six, and I feel really that I have been able to balance it. And it's really, really worked. I homeschool my kids on Fridays, so I see them all day Friday. So it's just, it was an issue that wasn't an issue. The other issue was more around the confidence part. So um, I didn't believe that I had the skills that were necessary to take a CEO job and make a success of it. Yeah, I so I sort of I just ruled myself out from it. And I I think to some extent that was because I had been within businesses that had been very successful. And once you've been in a business for a long time, it can become quite difficult unless you're very self-aware to really understand to isolate your skills and contribution versus, you know, the excellent environment that you're within. And so I wasn't wholly convinced that actually 
I personally had the skills or the knowledge that I needed to to take to take into another environment. Um, so that is why I had ruled it out. I'd like to pick up on both of those. The first one, was it a case that the global CEO wanted you and was willing to be flexible or did you ask explicitly, this is what I need? I didn't ask. I didn't ask. And this was my big learning, actually, because had it been left to me, I probably would have said, I'll take a nine day fortnight. I probably would have fudged it and ended up with something that didn't work for me. They offered it me. The reason that they actually, there's reasons behind why they offered it me. I was, I was, you know, contracted at the time for someone else and I was doing a four day week and they assumed I would want the same contractual pattern, but I didn't ask for it. They made an enlightened assumption and I took it. So it was a great learning for me, which is well, I should be bolder. I should ask for these things because I probably wouldn't even have asked for that. They offered me something I didn't even ask for. And I just think, I always say it when I speak to women in the industry or people who are coming off in the industry, I'm like, don't assume something's not on offer. Ask for it and you might find that it is. I'm really strong on that with any clients I work with. And this whole thing of the balance of power when you're starting a new job, you are very powerful just at that moment. Yeah. Yeah. you, And you know, whether you've accepted the job or not, where well, you can have the warts and all discussion, but people are very differential. It's re it's remarkable that you know, and that they're surprised by nearly the generosity of the employer. No, it's it's it it should be a very um, yeah a, a conversation of equals at that point. Yeah, uh, yeah, hundred percent. And also, I think being really clear with yourself what your hard lines are, because in truth, I was almost prepared to break a hard line that I hadn't even set yet. I really wanted a four day week, but I was prepared to take a nine day fortnight. I mean, I was breaking my own life. I mean, you know, that's terrible leadership. I wasn't even leading myself. So again, it was just a great learning for me. I was, so it, it, it worked out wonderfully, but not necessarily through my own bravery. <laughs> but I love that, that recognition. I wasn't even leading myself. That's yeah. a top, that's a top 10. But in terms of the confidence, this one, I don't really get mm. worked in a great environment. So which you recognized, mm. but then that somehow led you to believe that maybe I don't have the skills to do it on my own without this support. Mm. Why does that work? That was interesting. I mean, I think a few, a few different things. I think I had yet to find confidence in my own style. Um, and I hadn't seen many people immediately above me on the ladder in CEO positions that I could identify with, which is a diversity issue in general, I think. I hadn't worked for a female CEO. There weren't many people who I'd worked for in very senior positions who exhibited sort of similar type of skill sets to me. I'm quite high empath. I'm sort of, I use humor a lot. I, you know, I, I, I just, I had the people who worked above me were either, um, be they male or female, they displayed quite traditional, quite slightly more um, command and control style leadership approaches. And I just thought, I, I'm not really that. And I think, therefore, that's probably, it's not really for me. I just didn't see myself in the sort of traditional model of success. And also, I think I hadn't had any coaching, which I've had a lot of coaching since I was at TBWA. Um, and I hadn't really yet been able to distinguish between sort of personal issues and environmental issues. So what is the challenge that sits within the company versus what's the challenge which is kind of unique to me? And um, and I'm much better at doing that now. And it's actually something I know, it's one of the um, 
things that you look at within your leadership readiness test, James. And it was interesting going through that because it kind of pulls it out. And now I'm just much more aware of my strengths and challenge areas. And I can sort of say, you know, that was down to something that's attributable to me, good or bad, versus that was an environmental factor. And that, you know, so, but I think that, I think had I had coaching much earlier on in my career, I would have developed those, those, um, uh, that knowledge much earlier. And I think it probably would have, well, it would have boosted my confidence, but I didn't get any coaching until I started this role. So I was 40 by the time I'd ever experienced any coaching. Previous to that, I was just learning on the job, just learning from mimicking people above me. If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to test your own readiness for the hot seat, then take the leadership readiness scorecard. Details in the show notes and on swimnotsync.com. Well, there's a lot of a lot of different points to take out of that. I think one that I would say from my old company, so Rick, mm-hmm. we, who had a super CEO for about 15 years. Yeah. And then when he left, I think it became clear that he had made everyone's life quite easy. Because yeah. was, strategy was on one page. It was very clear and everyone was executing. Yeah. There's a difference when then you have to, when everyone has to step up and take responsibility for the strategy because the environment is not so straightforward anymore. And I think that's where a lot of people were found out and, and maybe struggled to step up. So that that's what comes to mind when you talk about how good are you and how good is the environment that supports you. The other point is CEOs you can identify with. You've now done it. You, you, mm-hmm. you're, uh, you can be a role model for somebody else. Would it be better for someone to take over from you and your triumvirate now, four years on, or was it better for you guys four years ago? So was it better to take over from a failure or a success? I certainly felt that taking over from a failure was was less of a risk. Because, you know, as you identified at the start of this, a few people have been in and and it hadn't there hadn't been much movement in it. And I think as my husband said to me at the time, well, you know, if you go in and you make a success of it, great. And if you go in and it doesn't work, well, there you go. <laughs> um, and there was a bit of that kind of like, well, what is there to lose? And we were able, there was a huge space wide open for us to take in our ideas. The recognition that change needed to happen was already there. So a lot of the hard work of getting people into a place and getting the network into a place of accepting us, accepting our ideas and being willing to change, all of that was in place. I think if you go into someone that's a success, I can imagine it is much harder because you are obviously every business will need to evolve and change over time or you start to go backwards. But if something is a success, you risk dismantling it. You know, the only way is down, et cetera, et cetera. So for me at a leadership role, going into something where um, there were so many, so many low hanging fruit for positive change was gave me more of a chance as a, as, as a first time CEO to make some, to get some positive wins early on. Yeah. Yeah, and and this is one where I maybe make a bit of a party political because it's something I, I feel strongly with yeah. the audience, right? I think what you've described is a good fit between what needed done and what you brought to it. Yeah. Okay. And therefore, it was a good recruitment on behalf of the agency. But what I see many people try and do is they take what they're good at and force fit it to the situation. Sometimes mm-hmm. the situation is it's going well or What's often more tricky is it's going well, but it's about to fall off a cliff and nobody's yet seen it. And you need to be the one to, yeah. <laughs> to start flagging that. Yeah. 
I think, and we also we look at it on the Rebuilders podcast about rebuilding, and which was in part inspired by personal circumstances, in part inspired by sort of you know turning a business around. And one of the very first stages is accepting that something needs to happen, and sort of letting go of the thing that hasn't worked. And you know, and then the next stage is okay. How do you go about putting things back together? Now, for us at TVWA, that first stage was already done. You know what I mean? They were looking for a team who could come in. There was an acceptance that things were ready to change. And we were sort of planting in fertile ground in a way. But in the other instances you describe, you know, there's a big, it's, it's, it's hard work to go into, you know, be it a business or a relationship and acknowledge that something needs to change and identify what that thing is and get people on board with the concept of change because, you know, the old adage, no one likes change. So I think we were, in many ways, um, we were going into an environment where a lot of the hard work had already been. There's one other sort of dimension of your story, which I'd like to get on to, which is that you've mo- you moved from a big but independent agency yeah. and then you moved into a global network. And going back to Alistair Payton, I was at the other, my discussion with him was at the other direction where I was in sort of a big multinational and I was looking to move down to something smaller. Yeah. Um, and he was very interested in talking about the challenges. So I'm, I'm aware of the challenges of going from bigger to smaller. How have you found the journey going the other way? I actually found it easier. And the reason is because um, my experience of smaller companies and independent companies is what I now understand is what is termed a hero culture. The um, they you know they're founded by incredible individuals who have a who make a mark and they have a really strong view of how things will go. Um, and you kind of slot in underneath that. And it doesn't matter whether it's Steve Jobs or kind of the founders of my of my former agency. Um, and that sort of hero culture means that everyone can sort of slot in behind and you kind of replicate that vision. What I came across when I went into TVWA, which is a collective and is part of a network, is actually now what I understand is called more of a host culture where you don't have to be this heroic, amazing individual because that's not really how those you know, much larger multi-stakeholder matrix organizations work. And the great thing about that is you don't suddenly need to sort of, you know, you don't need to be a hero. There's a huge network of people who can help you and no one's expecting you to sort of be the next Steve Jobs. Actually, they're expecting you to work with an amazing team and ask for help and connect and learn from other places. And so for me, that was a huge blessed relief because things that I thought, um, you know, this image of a leadership that I think I'd had before, which I thought I couldn't match up to, I realized I didn't need to actually, because I was in this, you know, global organization of thousands of absolutely excellent people who were very willing to help me. And uh, and it was about sort of finding my place and connecting it and connecting it together. And I found it much more supportive and people willing to help and, and willing to listen and willing to coach me and train me and that kind of thing. So I actually found it much easier so maybe looking more now into the the future Mm. you're a ceo you're a working mom you're busy and then you decide to do a podcast i mean what what, what (laughs) i know and i did it with my cso who has two children one of whom is even younger than mine um the reason that i did it um and the area which is of just such enormous interest for me um is the is the kind of cultural people element 
of business. And I think that is partly because I'm from a strategic background and, you know, strategic planners in my industry, spend, we spend our time understanding consumer behavior and why people tick and why they do what they do. And that's kind of my first love. And then when you go into a company, you realize, and then when you're running a company, you realize that people are it. I mean, we're a service business and we are, you know, our people are what we do. You know, our people are what generate ideas and we have to have, you know, we want a creative environment, a diverse environment. And, and actually that is where it begins and ends, you know, um, how those people come together to communicate, to problem solve, how they function or don't function, how intrinsically motivated they are. That is the, the night and day of, of my job. And, and I, you know, that sort of only becomes, uh, more stark to me that the more time I spend and actually now I'm sort of obsessed with looking at other companies and kind of going you know the WeWorks or the Ubers or and going what isn't working in there what isn't working in there and it's not hardware problems it's not manufacturing problems it's the much more complicated stuff it's the people problems and while I think for quite a long time that's been just the preserve of HR for me it's about culture and and that's what we do in in, you know, in my industry as we build culture out there in the world, but culture inside in companies, I mean, for me, that's fascinating. And for me, that is, that will be the holy grail of what will make companies tick. How do we adaptively problem solve? How do we attract diverse talent? How do we protect that talent when, you know, people are so pressed and um, and stressed with everything that's going on in the world? And it, for me, it's not just the preserve of HR. It is the be all and end all of a company. And so I that's the area which just takes more and more and more of my interest. Great. Well, it's what I call in my work the embodiment. So you, you've said mm -hmm. that if it's all about people, you're going to invest your time and your discretionary effort into that area. And you've done it in a very public way with the, the, the podcast. Yeah. I mean, to give it a shout out, what I love about it is the conventional logic is, you know, experiment feel fast and of course there's merit in that but yours is the antidote to that which is all about yeah. okay imagine you take something which isn't working how do you fix it and there's very few people talking about that and i it's much more where my heart lies so i uh, I, I really enjoy yeah. it yeah but, and i don't know if it's a function of middle age maybe it is but you know the, the truth is that anna and i just thought you know, yes, in the movies, people can sail off into the sunset and start again and startups are so sexy. And, you know, we were sort of saying yesterday, how often do people write about ruby weddings rather than write about the first flush of love? But the reality is for most people, most of the time, we are, we want to make the best of what we have in front of us. We don't want to just kind of, you know, quit and walk away. And particularly now, we actually started it in the middle of 2020, but even more so now, people are picking up the pieces of plans that they had or relationships that have struggled or businesses that are struggling and they want to put them back together and make the best of it. And for us, it might be less sexy, but by God, is it, is it a skill? So as, as we, as we come to the end, I asked the same question to all my guests, which is, you know, if you think back to you, maybe pre-mother or pre-TBWA at that stage, what, what's, what are your, what are your pieces of advice? I always say get coaching as early as you can. And by coaching, it, I just mean um, find ways of being self-reflective, 
about you and your style and what works for you and your strengths. And that could just be reading some books. You know, it doesn't have to be paying for a coach. Um, It could just be reading books. I just didn't do that. And it wasn't something that was really done apart from an annual appraisal. And actually, it gives you so much confidence and it helps you work into your strengths. And I just think, you know, don't, don't be shy to spend time on yourself in that way. Yeah, it's my uh, own personal sort of prayer yeah. for 2021 is to normalize it. Yeah. You know, I, I know yeah. that it's become a lot more mainstream, but it, it, for me, it has to be the absolute, the absolute norm. You know, yeah. why? because as you've talked through, there's lots of challenges, lots of things going on in your head. It is, it is the hot seat for a reason. And you do need support. And if you don't get it in whatever form that support comes, if you don't get it, you're more like, yeah. and it's not going to be pleasant for you or for the people who work around you. So. I can 100% say that I would not have been successful in this role without the without the really deep coaching support that TBWA have given me. My my boss, Troy Rohanan, I'm going to call him out again, is massively enlightened. He's the best boss I've ever worked for, the best person I've ever worked for. He is coached um, and, uh, you know, and all of the senior leadership team, in, in global in TBWA are coached and I I thank them for providing um, and shining a light on the requirements and the you know the necessity of coaching and, and providing it for for all the CEOs which they do because it's been absolutely invaluable for me. I think you're going to get a request for more of that from from your team when they when they. <laughs> well, we did actually at the end of last year, um, we we started doing drop in drop in coaching sessions for people with a professional coach that people could just go for half an hour. It was it's virtual and just take anything to her um, because it just helps people problem solve to share and also just coaching is about taking back control. You know, solving the problem yourself and and helping people feel that they are in control in this quite, you know strange environment that we're in we'll leave it at that point so sarah a real pleasure and i think you've given me the easiest edit i've ever had on a podcast oh it's been such a pleasure james i've loved it such a treat to do for the new year you've been listening to the swim not sink leadership podcast subscribe at swimnotsink.com forward slash podcast